All right, well, we are continuing in Ephesians this morning. This is actually, technically, it's part two of the sermon from last week because we ran into some stuff last week that kind of lengthened the sermon, so we split it in two. So this is part two. So this will be Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 20 through 23 is what we're looking at today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, um, it's page 1036 in the Bible that's right in front of you, um, or you can always follow along in our app or in the YouVersion Bible app. And so just a reminder of kind of what we're seeing, um, this is Paul's prayer, and so he is praying in these verses for the Ephesians. Um, and we saw last week he kind of takes one idea and he branches it into another and into another and into another. And so this is part of his prayer, like a chain, right? Since I've heard of your faith, I give thanks, and I pray God will give you wisdom and knowledge to know, to know three things we saw last week, the hope of his calling, the wealth of his inheritance, and the greatness of his power. Um, and last week we stopped at the greatness of his power um, so that we could cover all of that this week. And so today we are talking about God's power in Christ. And so with that, because this was supposed to be included with last week's sermon, but it wasn't, I had a little extra time to look at what was really happening in these three verses. Um, and what I found was there are a lot of connections to other verses in Scripture in these three phrases. I feel like Paul does this a lot where he takes a phrase and you could spend a whole hour on one of the phrases in his book. Now, we're not going to do that because we want to be timely in finishing Ephesians and we don't want to be preaching it for like uh, three years. But unless you guys are okay with that, you want to be, we could do Ephesians for three years, but I think you guys want to move a little fast. So we'll just look at those. So we'll see a couple of those here. So as we go through, um, there's going to be a lot of references. So I would encourage you just to jot those down. I'll try to repeat them to you so you can connect, so you can make all of the connections here. Um, the amazing thing also about what we're going to see in God's power through Christ is almost all of these are grounded in his death and his resurrection, right? His power, his authority, his reign, all of it comes from the cross, right? He took something that was designed for death and for humiliation, and he turned it into victory over death and sin, and here we talk about like the gospel message of what Jesus did on the cross for us. Um, and I think what you're going to see this morning is that is not unique to us. Um, we are just doing what Scripture already does because almost everything that we see in these three verses connects back to what happens on the cross. And um, Scripture itself also tells us that. And so we are talking about God's power and how it works in the world. And so when we think of God's power, you may think, at least one of the first things I think of of God's display of his power is creation, right? He created everything out of nothing. He literally spoke words and things popped into existence. Um, we're reading Chronicles of Narnia with Eli, um, and they have one of the best explanations or pictures of what creation looks like, and it's Aslan the lion sort of sing-songing right? And as he does that, things just appear out of nowhere. And so it's a great illustration of what God does in creation. He just speaks and things show up and you see trees grow and blossom and bloom and all of these things together. And so in Ephesians, Paul, as we said, is doing, taking special care that what, what God is doing in making us new and giving us new life is done through Christ. Christ is what does all of that in us. And 
we're actually going to start in a different place than Ephesians. You don't have to turn there. Um, you can just write it down. But we're going to actually start in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, because I think this will set the tone um, for what we're going to see in the rest of the sermon. So just listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. He says this, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. And now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Right? And there's a lot in these verses. Right? Christ being raised from, raised from the dead, Christ being the first fruits, which we're going to come back to in a minute, um, God reigning over the kingdom, death defeated. But I want us to focus on the last two verses, which were probably the hardest to understand if you were just listening to it. Right? It's what it's saying is, is that God put everything under the feet of Jesus with one exception. Right? The one who put everything under Jesus, God himself. Right? So God is saying he does this through Jesus. He gives him authority. He sets up his reign so that God may be all in all. And all of this is done to reveal God to us, to understand God's power. It is done through Jesus to bring glory and praise to the Father through the Spirit. And so if you want like an extra credit assignment for Ephesians chapter 1, um, there's actually a lot about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit in chapter 1. So if you wanted to go back through and read how the Father, Son, and Spirit work together and are seen in Ephesians chapter 1, you could do that for, I don't know, bonus credit, extra credit, whatever you want to do. It's, it's there, um, but we're not going to cover that. And so the, the point I really want us to understand at the beginning is, right, all of this is working in Jesus. He displays his power through what we are about to see him do in Christ, right? It isn't Jesus acting on his own, but acting according to the mission and the authority that the Father has given him, <clears throat> So let's read verses 20 through 23. It's going to sound familiar to what you just heard in Corinthians, but before we kind of keep moving, let's, let's read through it. So this is 20 through 23 of Ephesians chapter 1. It says, He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And so what we're looking at is how do we see God reveal his power in Christ? And first we see that God has power over death. 
He has power over death. We see this right from the beginning. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead. So this is maybe the most significant of God's demonstrations of power in Christ. He raises him from the dead. Jesus comes to earth. He lives a perfect life among us. Then he is arrested. He is tried. He is crucified. He is killed. He is buried. Right? Even though he was innocent and he lived a perfect life. But that's not the end of the story, right? God raises him from the dead. And when he did this, he overcame two things we see, death and evil. Those are two things which we cannot overcome, right? We cannot avoid death. It is going to come for all of us, right? And our death comes actually because of evil, because of the sin that shattered God's original intentions for creation. So, two things, overcoming death and evil. Death is coming, and evil comes because of sin that has shattered God's intentions for all of us. So when Jesus is raised to life, both of those things are conquered, right? Death, the power that it previously held over us, is severed. The same with sin. We can now overcome them through Christ as well. We can do that, right? This is done through the power of God in Christ, God raised Christ from the dead, and while that is significant and life-changing, Paul doesn't just want us to leave it there, right? To say, oh, God has the power to raise Christ from the dead. He wants us to make another connection, right? That the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us, right? The same power is available to us, the power that we need to live a life pleasing to God. Yes, this power of God raised Christ from the dead, but it's not exclusive to him, right? It's not only for that purpose. It's available to all of us to bring spiritual life out of, dead, of death. But I think sometimes we can be tempted to think that God's power that he displays, well, that was great for Jesus, and of course it worked for Jesus. He's God's son. He has that power. He can be raised from the dead. He can do all of these amazing things. But I'm not God's son. I don't have access to that kind of power, right? I'm not Jesus. How can I do that? How can I have access, right? But God's power is for all of us. The same power is available to us, can work through us, through Christ. We see these examples kind of sprinkled through Scripture. Jesus as the living water for us that satisfies and gives us life so that we will never grow thirsty. Jesus as the bread of life that sustains us and gives us strength. I read somebody this week that was talking about this thing of Jesus as the bread of life, and they had a new understanding when they looked back at the culture. Because for us, um, if you go out to eat, bread is like your appetizer. That's what they give you at the beginning like for free, it's just included in your meal. And so for some of us, that's our concept of bread. It's something extra that you get that goes alongside your meal, right? But for them, in the time period when Jesus was living, bread was the center. It was the staple of the meal. That's what they ate every time, right? And so what it's saying is Jesus is the center. When it says Jesus is the bread of life, it's not just an, it's not just an appetizer. It's not just something you get for free or that's thrown in. It's the main thing that sustains us and gives us strength, both physically and spiritually. All right, that's the power that is at work in us. 
But what does this power do for us? Well, there's a couple of things that we see here. One, it reveals Jesus as the first fruits. We saw this in 1 Corinthians 15, um, in verses 23 specifically, um, and a little bit before that. But 23 says, But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so what Paul wants us to understand is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, that wasn't the end of people being raised from the dead. Jesus was the first one, and many more would come after. Right? That includes us. Right? We are the ones who come after, who can now be raised from the dead as well, because sin and death were conquered. Right? We will follow after. It also gives us hope of the resurrection. If Jesus is raised, then we can also be raised. We can also have eternal life. We can also experience the resurrection. Right? It is possible. The other implication, I think, is nothing and no one is too far gone for God to resurrect, for God to save, for God to rescue. Right? If he can bring Jesus back from the dead, if you're here this morning, if you're watching online this morning, you're not dead. Right? So you are, by definition, not as far gone as Jesus was. So if you are living, if you are alive, no matter what you've done, no matter the mistakes you've made, no matter how, what, what you've done or, or people you've hurt or things that you've done, none of those matter. God can save you and he can rescue you from those things. As long as you are living, you can be rescued. That's what God's power tells us. We also see that God has power over all things, over all authority. We see this in the end of verse 20 and 21 and 22, where he's seated at the right hand of the heavens, <clears throat> far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet. There are two, there are two parts to this. Right, that we see seated and subjected. Right? Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and all things are subjected to him. And there is a connection between these that kind of help us understand it from the Psalms. And so I'm gonna, we're going to walk through that really quick. And so the picture of Jesus seated at God's right hand and ruling of, over other powers comes from Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1. This is worth remembering um, because this is one of the most often psalms quoted in the entirety of the New Testament. And it says this, This is the declaration of the Lord to my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so this is Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. We see that all the way back from the psalms that this is going to happen and that all of his enemies would be underneath him. I thought this week of, what does that mean, that his enemies are his footstool? And so I just pictured, like, Jesus sitting on a couch, and he kicks up his feet, and the thing that he rests his foot on were, was his enemies. And I thought, how, how humiliating, right, to be, like, kneeling on the floor and somebody resting their feet on you. 
right? How humiliating that may be, must be for his enemies to so, show complete power and domination over them. And I, I don't think this is to say that everyone is humiliated, right? But I think it just shows Jesus' complete power that he is over and above everything. We are all underneath him. And then as he continues through this, Paul connects everything being subject to Christ. This is from Psalm chapter 8. And this is Psalm 8, verse 6. And it says, You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Right? And so that's another connection. And we've actually already seen both of those, if you remember, from 1 Corinthians 15 as well. Right? He puts his enemies under his feet and puts everything under his feet. And Psalm 8, just for fun, I got on a little trail of where this all was quoted, um, is referenced also in Hebrews chapter 2. So let's take a look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 2, because I think that's going to help us build out um, what this understands. And so it says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. Um, if you're wondering, those verses right there in Hebrews are Psalm 8, 4 through 6. So that gives you more context from Psalms. And then he continues explaining what that means. He says, For in subjecting everything to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Meaning he is over everything, so there's nothing left outside of that. As it is... We do not yet see everything subjected to him, meaning we ex- talk about this often as well. We're experiencing right, the already, but the not yet, right? Christ is already ruling and reigning, and he will win the victory, but we don't yet see that come. We still have sin. We still have pain. We still have heartache. We still have brokenness in the world, but our victory is assured. It is coming, but we do see Jesus... <clears throat> made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Right? We again see the power of Christ displayed in his death. He is crowned with glory and honor because he died for us. He lowered himself to live among us. He submitted to the authority of the Father for us, for our good, for our salvation. And so the question we're asking for these phrases, because these are phrases we don't use every day, is what do these actually mean? Like, what does it mean to be seated at the right hand of God? So Paul is affirming Christ's superior status when he says this. Right? He is uh, preeminent over all claims to authority, whether human, non-human, physical, non-physical, real, imagined, present, or future. <clears throat> this, I wasn't sure I was going to read this quote with you, but I, it, it's sort of funny. Uh, there's a quote that I read this week kind of talking about this concept, and it's, it's really, really, really old, like thousands of years old. But the quote was, what gnats are compared with humans so is the whole creation compared to God, right? That's how creation is for God, how much bigger and powerful he is, is us compared to gnats, right? And so when it talks about Jesus seated at the right hand of God, there's a couple of, there's three things I think that scripture teaches us this says. One is that it is a place of honor, 
right? Proximity equals honor. The closer you are to a person of power or authority, um, the more honor you are shown, right? If you are somebody's right-hand man or right-hand person, you are important, you are valuable, right? If you want to get an important message to someone, right, you don't want the 30th guy in the chain, right? The second guy is way better. That's what it's saying. He is a place of honor next to God. There's also this, this, this thread in Scripture that talks about when, when Jesus sits down at the right hand of God. This act of being seated means his work is finished. What he did on the cross completed his mission on earth, and he is seated because he has accomplished what he needs to accomplish for our salvation, and he is seated at the right hand. It's like when you're doing something difficult or challenging or tough, and you know you just have to keep going because if you sit down, you'll stop short, right? So Jesus is saying, I didn't stop short. I completed my mission and my purpose, and I am sitting at the right hand. The other thing Jesus does from God's right hand is he intercedes for us. Right? We see this in Romans 8:34. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. He is sitting at the right hand of God, intervening on our behalf, hearing our prayers, listening to what we say, knowing what we need, and he is working together with God to accomplish those things in our lives. In Hebrews 7, there's a a fun little explanation of what's happening here. It talks about high priests um, on earth, and it basically says, on earth we have a whole bunch of high priests, or they they used to have a whole bunch of high priests, because they all died. So every time one died, you needed a new one, and so that's why we had so many. But Jesus came as our high priest, and he can remain our high priest forever. He is always there. He is always available. He will not be replaced. He always brings those who come to God to the Father because he is always there and he is always ready and he was always waiting to hear from you. So we don't have to go through anybody else. There's no human that we have to go through to get to God because our high priest is seated right next to God. We can go straight to him. And then we get to this list of powers and authorities. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time trying to interpret what all of these mean. Some people that I read this week tried to do that. But I think it's better to say um, kind of a summary statement, right? That Jesus is over all authority, physical, spiritual, everything. And I think what Paul is doing is he's just kind of stacking these terms on top of each other, just like listing them one after another, after another, after another, after another to emphasize the complete authority over all things. But I wondered this week why Jesus was given this authority. Like, how did he get it? What did he do something that shows that he should deserve this authority? And I actually found the answer to that in a surprising place. And it was in Philippians chapter 2, which we usually use to talk about humility and sacrifice. So if you want to write down Philippians 2, I'm going to read it to you. A lot of this will, will sound familiar if you've um, grown up in church or been around church. And so it says this. It says, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, 
who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, when we read this, we usually stop right there and say, oh, it's an example of humility of how I should act. But this is actually the, the next verses, 9 through 11, says this. For this reason, because Jesus humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Once again, we see Scripture testifying that because of Jesus' death on the cross, he is exalted, he is honored, his name will be proclaimed. Another thing that centers on the cross. It is the reason he is exalted. And it's subjected everything under his feet. right? And so he, we are subject to God, meaning we have to follow him. And we are subject of God, I think, like a king. He is reigning over and we are his subjects right? who listen to him. The good news for us is we have a loving, benevolent king who seeks what's best for us, not just what's best for him. But what we actually see in this subjection of everything under Jesus is, is a reversal. Because of what we saw, we, we, we know from the Garden of Eden, that in the beginning, God set up Adam to rule over creation as his representative and said, hey, these are, this is the world, I'm giving it all to you. You are to reign, to have dominion over the earth, right? You name all the animals, you work all the land, you do all of these things. There's just one thing you can't do, right? Just one. And we know the story. Adam and Eve did the one thing they weren't supposed to do. And he fails his thing, his mission big time. And so because of that, Right? God's original intentions were broken, were shattered. It had effects for all time. And so then, to restore that, God sent Jesus to regain God's rule over creation. We see this in Romans chapter 5. If you want to read the whole thing, it's 12 through 21. I'm just going to read you a couple of these, but it talks about this reversal. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. For if by one man's trespass the many died, how much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? And the gift is not like the one man's sin, because from one sin came the judgment, resulting in condemnation, but from many trespasses came the gift, resulting in justification. If by the one man's trespass death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? See, Jesus was given authority because of his obedience, his perfect obedience to God, which included going to the cross. And because of that, he reversed what Adam has done. And he is reigning over and everything is subject to him. So we can trust in him. And the last thing we actually see in these verses in Ephesians is that God has power over the church. Right? Because we see the end of 22 and then 23, it says, And he appointed him as head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Christ is set up as the head of the church, which is called his body. Right? The relationship between body and head is an intimate relationship. Right? The church, the people of God, become a people connected to God through Christ, who actually represent Christ to the world. And this is the first time that Paul mentions the word church in Ephesians. But what we're going to see from this point forward in the rest of the book, this is going to be his emphasis. This is going to be what he talks about. This new life that we receive in Christ isn't an individual endeavor. It isn't something you do by yourself. To say, oh, I believe in Christ and I trust in him and I become a believer and I'm good. I can do this from home. I can do this by myself. I don't need anybody else. But that's not, what's, that's not true. What Paul is going to show us very clearly is that we need other people to walk this new life together with us, to show us how to live, to show us the benefits, to show us the blessings, to show us what it really means to have this new life. And so we're going to see this all the way through. That this thing that we have, these blessings that we have, yes, they're for us, but not only for us, but to be done and experienced in community together. Where God's power, I think, comes alive when we partner together with others. And so we can trust and rest in power at the end because he fills all things. And there's a ton of debate about what this phrase means. I'm not going to go into all of those because I didn't understand some of them, what it means to fill all things. So this is, I think, the best um, interpretation of what this says. It says, this is his body, which is being filled by the one who fills all things with all things or blessings. So it's basically Jesus is giving us all of these blessings because he is the one that fulfills all things. He gives us all things. He blesses us with all things. All things come through him because of what he has done, because of the power that he has, because he rules and he reigns, and everything is subject to him. Everything is under him. And so because of this, as we kind of bring this all together, what, is this, what does this mean for us? Well, it means... Jesus has the power to save us. He has conquered sin and death through his resurrection. 
Like we said earlier, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've seen. It doesn't matter how far you think you are from God. It doesn't matter if you think you're excluded from being forgiven or that you don't deserve forgiveness or that you're unworthy. If you're still living, you can be saved. You can experience forgiveness. You can experience salvation. All you have to do is trust that Christ died on the cross for your sins, took your place, took that punishment, and believe in him and give your life over to him so that you can overcome all of the things behind and you can be made new. And if you're already a believer in Christ, he still has power over all things. So no matter what your struggles are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're battling against, it's all under his authority. So whatever that is, whatever thing you're working through, whatever thing you're trying to figure out, it falls under the jurisdiction of Jesus. So he can walk you through that. He can help you through that, whatever it is. I don't need to give you examples because it's literally, every, it's literally everything, right? So whatever it is, is included in that. He has the power and authority to rescue you, to save you. And this power is displayed in the beautiful message of the cross, right? And we saw all the way through from Romans and from Hebrews and from Psalms that everything comes together in his death and his resurrection. Jesus' power is displayed. We can trust in him, and we can believe in him, and we can be renewed and strengthened and sustained because of God's power in Christ. Will you guys pray with me this morning? God, I come before you, and I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you, you clearly show us and demonstrate for us and say to us, Right, the power that Christ has in our lives to give us new life, to rule and to reign, and that he is currently doing that right now from heaven, seated at the right hand in a place of honor. He is interceding for us. He is listening to our prayers, working with the Father through the Spirit to impact our lives, to help us understand how to live and what decisions to make and how we can trust in Him. So God, I pray that this week you would just remind us that, that we can trust in you, that whatever's happening, that what, what, whatever's happened in our past, whatever we've done, whatever has been done to us, all of those things, can be overcome through your power because you overcame death, you overcame sin, and you can do that again in our lives. So God, as we go through this week, just help us to be reminded of your power that it can, it can overcome, it can help us, it can sustain us, it can strengthen us. So help us to trust in you. It's in your name I pray, amen.